Welcome to A Portrait of Jesus with Dr. Bill Creasy. Tens of thousands of you have already listened to Dr. Creasy's one-year Bible, 76 five-star lessons that take you through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Now Dr. C drills down and uncovers the most important person in Scripture, Jesus. With his characteristic wisdom and wit, Dr. Creasy introduces you to Jesus, not simply as a figure in the Bible or someone you meet in church, but as a living and breathing person, perhaps the most significant person who ever lived. You're going to love this series, and it's free for our listeners. So welcome back. We have Mary, Joseph, and Jesus back in Nazareth, and Jesus grows up. Now, I like... I like to imagine how that would have been. Mary and Joseph have a nice little home, not, nothing fancy. He was a construction worker and uh, uh, nothing fancy, but it was, they were a lovely family. And there are a number of uh, paintings that illustrate Jesus growing up uh, in Nazareth. And I'll, John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. And I'll bet they visited quite often. Mary and Joseph and Jesus would go to Jerusalem for the festivals, at least one a year, and that was their custom, as we'll read momentarily. And John the Baptist and Elizabeth and Zechariah lived in a suburb of Jerusalem, Karem, and they would have visited. And the two boys would have grown up together, and they would have played and talked and had, did all the things that little kids do. And up in Nazareth, Jesus grew up like any other little boy. You know, we have all these fanciful stories in, in later writings about Jesus. Mary standing at the kitchen sink, doing the dishes, looking out back, and Jesus playing in a mud puddle and making mud birds, and they fly away. No, none of that happened. <laughs> he grew up like any other little boy. You know, playing with the other kids, fooling around, uh, learning. And he would have, would have apprenticed ultimately to his father, Joseph, and learned to trade. Jesus also was a construction worker, if you will, somebody who worked in the building trades, and that was life. And it would have been a lovely life. Now, there was always that dark cloud hanging over Mary's head. You know, some of the other mothers maybe wouldn't let their children play with Jesus because of, you know, and, uh, but it was life in a, in a small town, in a little village. And there they were all together. And, well, when we visit Nazareth today, Nazareth is a very big town. It's the largest town in Galilee and very crowded, nothing like you would imagine it to be. But we visit Mary's well. Any town or village must have a fresh water source. And the only fresh water source in Nazareth at the time was that well. And all the women would have gathered there in the evening to get water for the next morning. That all the women would come, little children with them, they'd play and fetch the water and take it back home and get ready for the next day. And that would be how life was. And going there and seeing Mary's well. Today there's a little Greek Orthodox church built over top of it. The funny thing about the Holy Land, every time you find a spot where something happened, somebody drops the church on top of it. Yeah. <laughs> But we, we go, we visit, and have a look at it. And you get a sense that where did Mary and Joseph live? Well, if you put a compass, the foot of a compass, down on the well, and you went out maybe 
a thousand yards and swept the other foot around, it was somewhere in that ring. Okay, the Church of the Annunciation is there. Uh, the Greek Church of the Annunciation is there. So everything's right within that circle somewhere. And uh, when we move on a little bit here, we look at Luke chapter 4 of Jesus going back to Nazareth and preaching at the synagogue, and the people get really insulted and want to throw them off a cliff. We go to the cliff, the brow of the cliff. There's only one spot where it drops right down to the Jezreel Valley, and we go visit there. And I'll bet Jesus rode his bike out there how many times? You know, hung out and played around, and they were on the cliff. They were looking at all the scenery, and yeah, that, that would be life, uh, life in Nazareth. And we can only, only picture what that would be like. But when Jesus turned 12 years old, they made a trip to Jerusalem. And we look at Luke chapter 2, beginning at verse 41. Every year his parents went to Jerusalem for the feast of Passover. Passover, one of the three pilgrimage festivals, and the biggest one. So they went every year at Passover. That was their custom. When he was 12 years old, he went up to the feast according to the custom. And after the feast was over, while his parents were returning home, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, but they were unaware of it. So they made the trip from Nazareth to Jerusalem, just like Mary had done earlier before Jesus was born, to go to Elizabeth, who lived right outside of Jerusalem in a suburb, and they would have made the 90-mile trip. At that time, it would be really crowded because you, if people coming into Jerusalem would come in by ship to Caesarea Maritima and then up the road to Jerusalem from Joppa up the road, and there would have been a lot of people from all over the Mediterranean. If you lived in Rome and you got on board a ship, you could sail to Caesarea Maritima in about less than two weeks. So it wasn't like traveling for months at a time. It was rather comfortable traveling by ship, and then you would have a day's journey up to Jerusalem after you got there. So people came from all over. But those coming from the north, Nazareth, for example, Capernaum, anywhere up in that area, Damascus, they would come, Jesus and his family would have left Nazareth, come down off the ridge, across the Jezreel Valley to Beit Shan, uh, a Roman town right on the Jordan River, cross over the Jordan River at the fording point there, and then parallel the Jordan all the way down to Jericho, because it's basically downhill. Sea of Galilee is 700 feet below sea level, Jericho is 900 feet below sea level. So it's a pretty easy walk, and on the other side, the east side of the Jordan, uh, there, there's a lot more, a lot of fresh water sources on that side. On the west side, it's kind of rugged territory, so you travel on the other side, the easy route. Down to Jericho, across from Jericho, across the Ford Over, which is where John the Baptist will be baptizing momentarily. He didn't baptize out in the middle of nowhere. He baptized during the pilgrimage festivals at the intersection of the 5 and the 405, right? <laughs> that's where all the traffic was. He had a ton of people there. And that's where they would all cross over, and he was baptizing right there. And then they would go from Jericho up the old Roman road. It's 17.3 miles from 900 feet below sea level to 2,500 feet above. It is a steep climb for 17 miles. And as you climb up that road, we've driven it. 
uh, I've walked down it. I, I didn't walk up it, I'm no fool. But I walked down it, and it is, I measured it with my iPhone, it's 17.3 miles. And, but when you're coming up the road, on the right-hand side, you're going up through what's called the Wadi Kelt. A Wadi is a dry riverbed. It's like a canyon. It starts off way up in, uh, in Jerusalem, and it cuts right through the mountains all the way down to Jericho. And when it rains up in Jerusalem, it flash floods down through that wadi and empties out into the Dead Sea. And going up, you walk, you're going uphill, not that steep yet, for maybe a, I don't know, a, a mile or two. But then you really start climbing. And we've gone up that in a bus. Can't do it anymore. Part of the road fell away during one of the, one of the winter storms. And it was a Roman road, you know, this part broke off. So you can't drive up it anymore, but we used to do that. How many did that with me? Anybody here who did that? Yeah, remember how we drive up the road? And it, and it winds and bends, and, and the, it's a road that buses used to come up and down, but only one and a half buses would fit. You know, little narrow road. And I remember going there with, uh, uh, Father uh, Wayne Sanders, who was pastor at the Episcopal Church of uh, Good Samaritan in UTC, and uh, his friend, uh, Monsignor Sheehan, uh, who was pastor at Our Mother of Confidence, Roman Catholic Church. And I took the two of them with me on, on the tour, and they were pastoring it for me. And we're, I'm sitting in the front seat on the right, where the microphone is, so I could tell the story about this story about Jesus uh, being lost. And we're going up, and I'm telling the story, and I know right where it happens. When the bus comes around a very sharp curve, those big buses have the wheels behind the front door. So when you go around a curve like that, the whole front of the bus is sticking out over the cliff, right? And Monsignor Sheehan's sitting right next to me, next to the window, and I've got the microphone, and I'm telling the story, and I know the curve's coming up, and here it comes, here it comes, working on the story, and the bus goes right out over the cliff, and it's like, I don't know, a thousand foot drop. <laughs> and Monsignor Sheen grabbed the microphone and said, Hail Mary, full of grace. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it was so funny. We roared with laughter. I roared with laughter. But uh, you go all the way up to the top, 2,500 feet above sea level. And up on top, that's the Mount of Olives. And from there, you go down what we call the Palm Sunday Road, where Jesus entered Jerusalem. And you can walk down that road in 10 minutes, 15 minutes maybe. And halfway down is the Garden of Gethsemane. And if you look directly across at the temple platform, where today the Dome of the Rock sits, it's 320 yards, not far. I measured it with my laser rangefinder from the Garden of Gethsemane. It's just like right over, everything's small. Everything's right close. And, uh, and there would be the temple. On the southern steps of the temple, that was the main entrance for all the people over on the south side of the platform. So Mary, Joseph, and Jesus would have come from Nazareth, crossed over Jericho, gone up that road to the very top, and that's a long, hard walk up that road. You've been walking downhill mostly, gradually, but now you got that big climb, and, uh, and everybody. I've led a whole lot of tours to the Holy Land, 
and I know about group travel. And when the rabbi at Nazareth put together a trip for Passover to Jerusalem and all the people went and they're all walking along and they're all talking and everybody's great. But now we have that long walk up the hill and everybody starts complaining. Are we there yet? I'm tired, my feet hurt. How much further? What do you do with a group? You sing. And if we study the Psalms together, there are psalms of ascent. <laughs> psalms. They're songs that are sung on the ascent up to Jerusalem. And uh, we could do that. But that's the road, that's the route Jesus and his family would have taken. So at 12 years old, they go to Jerusalem. It is packed. There are a million people in town, shoulder to shoulder, packed. I mentioned that I took my two sons to every place that we went, that we traveled to, at, one, at least once. Israel, Egypt, Turkey, Greece, Jordan, Italy, Spain, all the rest. All the biblical stuff. And when they were little, I mentioned Jonathan being about first grade when he went to, to Israel. And I would always say to them, if we get separated for any reason, just sit down, don't move. Don't come looking for me, because if I'm looking for you and you're looking for me, we're never going to find each other. I'll come find you. Just sit down. Okay. Can you imagine Mary saying to Jesus, now when we get to Jerusalem, it's going to be really crowded and the streets are narrow and all. If we get separated, just sit down. Right at the temple steps, southern steps, you can't miss them. Just sit down and I'll come find you. Okay. So here they were in, in, uh, in Jerusalem. Now, it's time to go back home. So all the people from Nazareth who traveled together would have all met up on the Mount of Olives. And with their rabbi, they would have walked down the 17.3 miles and did the journey home. That 17.3 miles, one day. That's not a pretty long walk in a day. When we walk the Camino de Santiago, we average between 15 and 20 miles a day. So you can do it. It's not easy. Well, especially at the beginning, it's not easy, but you get into it, you know, and uh, that's what they would have done. So they meet at the top of the Mount of Olives. All the people are together. And it's a whole lot of standing around and waiting because people are going to be late. Neighbors, you know, they're fooling around, packing their bags and everything else. And here they are all waiting up at the top of the Mount of Olives. And, uh, and what are the kids doing? They're playing. They're 12-year-old kids. You know, they're playing and kicking the soccer ball and people are talking. And finally, everybody's there and they head off. Now, when they came to Jerusalem, Jesus was turning 12 years old. And what happens to a boy when he's 12 years old in Judaism? Bar mitzvah, right? It's your age of transition from childhood into adulthood. It's when you're accountable to God. You are accountable, no longer your parents, for you. So that's what happens at that time. So when they walked from Nazareth to Jerusalem, Jesus would have walked with the women because he was still a child. But after Passover in Jerusalem, where we would think of, he had his bar mitzvah at 12 years old. He's accountable. 
on the way back, he would walk with the men. You know, I'm grown up now, not walking with the women. So down they go, head toward Jericho. And they got down to Jericho, and they're going to have dinner, all the people from Nazareth. And Mary said to Joseph, where's Jesus? I don't know, I thought he was with you. No, he's supposed to be with you. <laughs> Wasn't with me. And they look, and they look, and they can't find him. Oh my gosh. If they left in the morning, it's a day's walk down to Jericho. If you leave about seven in the morning, you're at Jericho by four or five in the afternoon, and he's not here. <laughs> Can you imagine, Mary? I gave birth to the Son of God, and I just lost him. <laughs> what would you do as a parent? What is the only thing you would think? Because you knew he was up on the Mount of Olives before you left. He was playing with the other kids. What's the only thing you could think? On the way down, he was fooling around, and he fell. Because it's really steep vertical drop. Walking downhill like that, I don't, I don't want to be near the edge. He fell. So immediately, they turn around and start back up the road. Now, it was Passover, which means there was a full moon. The moon rises in the east over Jordan, right? And it shines against the back wall of the Wadi Kelt, which means where the road is directly below, it's all shadow because the other side's illuminated by the full moon. So they're walking up the hill and they're looking. Jesus, Jesus, they're looking for him. They get up to the Mount of Olives three days later. It's only one day journey, but they are frantically looking down in the rocks trying to find him. They think he fell. They finally get up to the top and they haven't found him. So what do they do? The temple's 300 yards away. They go to the temple. They pray. They've been praying the whole time, but they go to the temple. They began looking for him among the relatives and friends. When they didn't find him, they went back up to Jerusalem to look for him. And after three days, they found him sitting on the southern steps. If we get separated for any reason, <laughs> I guess the delay was so long that he thought, you know, he had been talking with the other rabbis and things, and he said, you know, I have a, I have a couple of questions. I'm going to run back, because it's only like 10 or 15 minutes away, and everybody's up there waiting for who knows how long. So he went back down to the temple, and then when he came up to the Mount of Olives, everybody's gone. What now? Mom said, go sit on the steps. <laughs> so he did, and he waited, and... The other people, religious leaders, rabbis were there, and here's the boy sitting. What's wrong, son? I got separated from my family. I think they're down in Jericho, and they told me to sit here. Oh, don't worry about it. Here, come, let, let, let me get you something to eat. So they kind of take him under their wing, and they're with him there at the southern steps. And, uh, and finally, they say, well, his parents will show up. And sure enough, they do. 
After three days, they found him right there at the southern steps with the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. He was there in conversation. And everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding. He's a precocious kid. And uh, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. His mother said to him, I have a really good joke right here, but I can't tell it in the church. <laughs> no, I don't dare. I don't dare. I won't, I won't do it. No, I can't. <laughs> Jesus Christ, where have you been? <laughs> Why have you done this to us? Why have you done this to us? And, and he said, didn't you know I, I had to be among, in my, among my fathers? You told me to stay here. I, I'm here at the father's house. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? And Mary said, I do not understand you. And then he went down to Nazareth with them and was obedient to them. But his mother treasured all these things in her heart. Again, struggling with all these things. And Jesus grew in wisdom and, not, and stature and in favor with God and men. So he grew up. Then we come to chapter 3 in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. In the late 20s. It's the missing time of Jesus' life. What happened during that time? From 12 years old to say... 29, 28, 29. What happened? Some people say, well, he went off to India and he learned all this stuff there. And uh, no, that's not what happened. Why don't we see anything about him between chapters 2 and 3? Because he had been grounded that entire time for the stunt he pulled in Jerusalem. So. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 3. Now in those days, John the Baptist, now, now we're up, Jesus is about 29, maybe 30 years old. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea. And he was saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is he who was spoken of through the prophet Isaiah. A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Now, John was a very strange fellow. John's clothes were made of camel's hair. He had a leather belt around his waist. His food was locusts and wild honey. Now, John the Baptist, we noted this last week. When Gabriel made the annunciation to Zechariah in the temple, he said, the boy shall not drink wine. He'll be a Nazarite from birth. Remember a Nazarite vow? We talked about it last week, Numbers chapter 6. Anybody can take a Nazarite vow, usually for a week or two, a time of separation to God. Think of it as a spiritual retreat where you leave home, you leave work, you go to, I don't know, a monastery or a spiritual center, and you spend time alone with God. Just you and God. Good thing to do, by the way. Do it regularly. Spend a week or two apart from everything, your family, your, your job, everything else, just you and God. 
there are lots of places where you can do that. And, uh, and it's, at first, really difficult because no TV, no anything, just you and God. But after a while, you get into the rhythm of it, and it's a very good thing to do. So a Nazarite would spend a week or two alone with God, and when you ended your Nazarite, and you didn't drink wine, you didn't put on your makeup, you didn't do all this stuff, it's just you and God. So at the end of that time, when you end the vow, you cut the hair that grew during the time of the vow, and the offerings that you make to end the vow include the hair that you grew, symbolic of the time you spent with God. So John the Baptist was a lifelong Nazarite, which means he never had a haircut. He's 30 years old. He has hair down to his waist, and he never trimmed his beard. He has a beard down to his belly button. And he dresses in camel's hair, really rough, and a leather belt around his waist, and a pouch on his side with locusts in it. And he'd reach in and go, <laughs> bite one of them. And he'd look out at the people and say, you brood of vipers, what are you doing here? Strange guy. And he grew up with Jesus. He's a cousin. So. He went out and he was baptizing people in the Jordan River opposite Jericho at the intersection of the 5 and the 405 during the pilgrimage festivals. Baptizing. You don't see anything about baptizing in the Old Testament. Nothing. You do have ritual immersion in a mikvah. Every Jewish family would go through ritual immersion, some more often than others, depending on how pious they were. But what you would do, typically, a mikvah would be in the home, and it, it, think of it like a jacuzzi. It, would have, it was down in the ground, and you went down steps into the water, unclothed, and you immersed yourself in the water, and you had prayers that you said when you fully immersed yourself, and then you came up. It was a symbolic cleansing of your sin. And uh, at Qumran, where the Dead Sea Scrolls were found, uh, the Essene community at Qumran had several mikvah, and they're big, and they go pretty deep. Uh, and and every, the people who live there, the Essenes, every day before the noonday meal, which was the main meal, they would immerse themselves in the mikvah as a means of purification before going together and having a meal communally. That happened every single day at Qumran. Qumran was a male community a kind of quasi-monastic community. At the time, Judaism had the Sadducees, which were the upper-class people in Jerusalem who were affiliated with temple operations. They were wealthy people. They lived in a really nice part of town in Jerusalem. And they, were, they held that the Torah was the inspired word of God, Genesis through Deuteronomy. The other books, they were okay, but they, weren't, they didn't have the the heft of the Torah. They didn't believe in the resurrection because there's nothing about it in the Torah. You do see it in the Psalms, you see it in uh, the prophets, but they didn't believe in resurrection. Jesus will have an issue with them. The Sadducees did not believe in resurrection, which is why they're sad, you see. <laughs> yeah. 
the Pharisees, the Pharisees, they were the people of the synagogue. Once the temple was destroyed in 586 BC by the Babylonians, how do you continue being a Jew? Because the Jews made five great sacrifices, the burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, guilt offering, and they had to be made at the temple. If you don't have a temple, how do you continue being a Jew? So during the Babylonian captivity, no temple, no Jerusalem, synagogues formed during that time. A place where the community would gather, much like here, they would have a meal together, they would study the word of God together, and they were a community. They would hire a teacher, a rabbi. The rabbi's job was to teach the people. And uh, that's how the whole synagogue movement began. And the Pharisees were the people of the synagogue. And they embraced all of the Hebrew scriptures uh, of their time as the inspired word of God. And a synagogue was a house primarily of study. And that was the other group. The third group were the Essenes. The Essenes were a little, well, very strict. And they saw the Sadducees and the temple operations and the high priest as being totally corrupt. Nothing good about them. Loathed the high priest. And the Pharisees, well, they were corrupt too. And they were like cafeteria Christians. They took what they wanted, rejected what they wanted. They were not serious. So the Essenes went out into the wilderness areas and formed quasi-monastic communities that were all male. There were, there were Essene communities in Jerusalem, which were kind of satellite communities of Essene, uh, of Qumran, but they were male. So how, how do you get members? Well, they were pretty radical. They were religious radicals for sure. And, uh, but how do you get members? Some people would join them, but they took in orphans, a lot of orphans. And John the Baptist's parents were elderly, Zachariah and Elizabeth. So apparently somewhere along the way, his parents die. And there's a very good possibility that John the Baptist was in some way affiliated with the Essenes at Qumran. The Essene teachings in the Dead Sea Scrolls are very much like the teachings of John the Baptist, and frankly, very much like the teaching of Jesus. I think he was influenced by them as well. And he and John were cousins. John knew about immersing in a mikvah, but John took it one step further. Ritual immersion, you did it to yourself, and you said the various prayers while you were doing it, and that purified you. It didn't take away your sin. It didn't renew you in some sense. It did purify you for that day, but it didn't do what baptism does. John went a step further. And John is baptizing opposite Jericho in the Jordan River. And if you're looking south in the Jordan River at that point, you look south a little bit to the right, and you can see Qumran right there at the Dead Sea. Because Jericho's only, a, I don't know, maybe less than a mile from the northern edge of the Dead Sea. And Qumran is on a, a plateau that overlooks the northwestern corner of the Dead Sea. You can see it from that spot in the Jordan River. John could see the Qumran community. They could see him. John is baptizing people.
nothing like it had been seen before. And when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to where he was baptizing, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't say, that you, don't say to yourselves, oh, we have Abraham as our father. Because I tell you, Abraham, God can raise these stones. Children from these stones of Abraham. An axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I am not fit to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and he'll clear the th his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Well, Jesus came to Jerusalem, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan River. What a scene that must have been. And there are countless paintings, particularly from the, the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, of John baptizing Jesus. But for a moment, I want to turn back to John chapter 1. John chapter 1. At verse 19. Now, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. So it's a pilgrimage festival. John is baptizing down opposite Jericho, and he has big crowds of people. And once they get up to Jerusalem, they're all talking about it. So the religious leaders set up and say, who, who is this guy? What's he doing? And why aren't we in charge? They send a delegation down to confront John. And this was John's testimony when they arrived. And they asked him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. Are you, are you the Messiah? I am not the Christ, they asked him. Then who are you, Elijah? Because in the prophet Malachi, Malachi says that John the Baptist will come, uh, that uh, Elijah will come preceding the Messiah. Are you Elijah? I am not. Are you the prophet? The prophet. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, Moses is about to die. And he tells the people, God will raise up a prophet like me from among your own people and you must listen to him. And then a few verses later, how do you know if a person's a prophet? And Moses answers, if what the prophet says comes true, 100% of the time, that's an authentic prophet. If not, he's a phony, kick him out. The prophet, God will raise up a prophet like me, the prophet. So they ask John, are you the prophet referenced by Moses in Deuteronomy 18 at verse 15? He said, no. Now notice this, I am not the Christ. 
I am not. No, get out. He's very abrupt with them. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the desert. Make straight the way for the Lord. Now some Pharisees who have been sent to question him said, Well, why then do you baptize if you're not the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And he said, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened at Bethany on the other side, the east side of the Jordan River, opposite Jericho, where John was baptizing. Among you stands one you do not know. The preposition is misos, in your midst. That means right here. If we put all this together, Jesus came to Jerusalem for the feast of, of Passover. John baptized him. What happens immediately after that? The Holy Spirit drives him out into the wilderness where he's tempted for 40 days. And then he comes back in 40 days later. Passover, 50 days later, is the festival of Pentecost. Passover remembers the Exodus. Pentecost remembers the giving of the law at Mount Sinai. And Tabernacles, the other third, remembers the wilderness 40 years. So Jesus is baptized at Passover. He's out in the wilderness 40 days. He comes back for Pentecost. When all the pilgrims are arriving for Pentecost, he's now back. And he's about 30 pounds lighter. <laughs> he's fasted for 40 days. And John is confronted at the Feast of Pentecost. Big crowds of people. And John says, among you stands one you do not know. And I'll bet anything, he sees Jesus right over there. And he winks at him. And Jesus winks at him. He is the one who comes after me, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. It all happened right there. Now the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said, look the Lamb of God. So John and his disciples are on the way out to the river, and Jesus is coming in the opposite direction. And he's carrying a bagel and a Starbucks coffee, right? <laughs> and John said, look, Lamb of God, who take, uh, look, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God, the burnt offering, right? Five great sacrifices. A perfect, unblemished-year-old male lamb becomes a sin, burnt offering, grain offering, peace offering, sin offering, guilt offering. If you're a Jew at this time, you are one of the covenant people. You're born into the covenant. You're circumcised. That's the badge of the covenant. It incorporates you into the covenant community. You are part of that community. And uh, if you find yourself at some point in your life out of sorts with God, You've said things, you've done things that you shouldn't have said and done, and you just feel alienated from God. You're, you're just not right with Him. How do you get right with God? 
That's what the five great sacrifices are for. First, you recognize your sin, you are sorry for it, and you want to make it right. So you buy your sacrificial animal, the sin offering. You go to the tabernacle earlier, temple later when it's built, and you present yourself before the priest with your sacrificial animal. You lay your hands on the head of that animal, confess your sins, symbolically identifying the animal with your sin. And then you're given a flint knife and you open the veins of the animal and it bleeds out. The animal's then offered as a sacrifice. After that, you make a guilt offering. A guilt offering makes restitution for your sin. If your sin was stealing from your employer, it's not enough to be forgiven. It's not enough to say to God, please forgive me, you're forgiven. Okay, no. You have to make restitution, you have to make it right. So if you stole something, you have to pay it back, plus something. Whatever your sin was, you can't just confess it and everything's fine. You've got to make restitution for it. And once you do that, then you can offer the burnt offering, bull, lamb, or goat, which speaks symbolically of offering your entire self to God, every bit of you. But you can't do that until you deal with the issue of sin, with the sin offering and the restitution, the guilt offering. Once you make the burnt offering, offer yourself to God, then you offer the fellowship offering. That's sharing a meal with God. Now you're back in fellowship with him. You make the offering, the priest takes part, you're given part, and you consume that part. You're now right with God. So when John said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he's referring to Jesus as the sin offering the one who will bear our sin and take our sin upon himself and go to the cross on our behalf. That's what he's referring to. This is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself didn't know him. Well, John did know him. He grew up with him. John knew Jesus. They were relatives. They grew up together. But I, I can imagine, after the baptism, and what happens? When John puts Jesus down in the water and brings him back up, in Mark, we have a dramatic scene in Mark, and, uh, and more so in Mark than anywhere else. In Mark, when Jesus is coming up out of the water, the verb tenses do it. As he's coming up at the very same time, he's looking upward, the heavens are, the verb is schizo, violently ripped open, and the Holy Spirit descends not on him, but ice, the preposition, into him. So as he's coming out of the water, the heavens are ripped open, the Holy Spirit right through him. And at the very same instant, the voice of God says, this is my beloved son, listen to him. What a dramatic moment. And John is right there. He feels the Holy Spirit 
powering down through Jesus. And John said, I knew him, I grew up with him, but I didn't really know him until that moment. Then he fully understood. John said, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. I wouldn't have known him as I do now except that the one who sent me to baptize with water told me the man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I've seen it, and I testify this is the Son of God. What a moment in Mark, that baptism moment. Well, with Jesus' baptism, he's now ready to begin his public ministry. And we're right up on the hour, so I leave you on the cliffhanger again. <laughs> Next time, Jesus will begin his public ministry, and we'll go to John to have a look at it. Stay tuned. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson. It's our gift to you. And be sure to check out Dr. Creasy on LogosBibleStudy.com for a treasure trove of truly in-depth teaching verse by verse through the entire Bible, Genesis through Revelation.